Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 26 this morning. You can find it on page 911 in the Pew Bibles there. You know, sometimes you have to look very, very closely in order to see the beauty or in order to see the value of something. You've got to, to dig down deep. You've got to get below the surface to really find out what something is worth. You know, it's one thing for us to kind of walk a creek bed and come alongside, uh, you know, a, an arrowhead or, or even a gold nugget. It's another thing to mine deeply to find the gold deposits that lie beneath. My brother-in-law always tells a story about in South Sudan how you can walk the streams there and there are diamonds just there in the creek bed, just, just laying there. And people see them and they, they know that they have some value, but let's face it, there's no means for them to process these diamonds. They have no way of harvesting them, no way of, of shaping them, no way of, of exporting them, and so they basically just toss them aside as, as having little or no value. We see the same thing in creation, right? You might look up at the night sky through all the smog and and the city lights and see a star and say, well, you know, that's nice. But it's another thing to to view the stars from the top of a mountain or through a powerful telescope. You can't get a picture of, say, the Grand Canyon by looking at the gully in your backyard as all this rain has kind of come through. You can't get an idea of what it's like to swim the Great Barrier Reef by examining, carefully looking at the, the aquarium in your dentist's office. To really get an idea, to get a picture of those, it takes effort, it takes experience to, to see the wonder in those things. Or in relationships. A quick glance might tell you that that woman is very attractive. A screen might show you the curves of her body, but you're not going to truly know just how beautiful that woman is. You won't know the significance of 50 or 60 years of marriage unless you begin to see the beauty of her soul. And in our culture, this is big because first impressions are everything. First impressions are huge. You've got a maximum of like five seconds to wow them, to show them how great you are, and to leave them wanting more, right? And so we put all of this emphasis on presentation. We put all of this emphasis on branding, creating trademarks, putting on a show, dressing everything up with lights and with sounds and sequins and dazzling accessories. We spend huge amounts of, of time and money and energy on those first impressions. Like for our first-time visitors, we're so glad you're here. Sorry we're not more impressive. We do this even with our families. We make, we make everything about firsts, right? You know, like, like first birthdays, uh, first steps, first day of school, first day of college, uh, the wedding and the honeymoon, the birth of the first child. Everything's about those firsts, and those are great things. But the true beauty is not found in the beginnings, but as we reach the end, as we see the course, as we maintain and dig deep and share in life together. That's when it becomes beautiful. And so often, even in church, we, we go big on show and we go light on truth because we've got to hook them. We've got to catch them. We've got to attract them. We've got to Velcro them to our community. And we have to do that in a way that it's presented without offense, that leaves them wanting more. We'll entertain them. We'll give them only bite-sized bits of our candy-covered truth so that they'll want to come back and ask for more. 
But that's not what we see them doing in the book of Acts. Amazing and astounding things are happening. Miracles, signs, and wonders are being performed. It's amazing. It's what a show. But, but instead of building upon that attraction, instead of focusing on dazzling you, if entertaining you, and amusing you with all sorts of, of wonders and signs, what we see them doing is turning the crowd away from the miraculous event to dig deep into truth. To see how Christ is the fulfillment of so many Old Testament promises. To look deeply at the gravity and the weight of our sin so that we can begin to then truly mine the blessing of what we have received in Him. To find that which will truly satisfy our souls. But we can't do that through first impressions. Only by digging deep. Only by laboring hard. We, we have to turn away from the sensational to what is scriptural, to the depth and reality of our sin, uh, to, to find that which will truly satisfy our souls, that which will truly lead us to wonder. It's only then that we can begin to truly understand what is beautiful and truly worthy of our worship and our wonder. But again, to do that, we have got to look deeply. And so for the call for us this morning from Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, is to behold, to wonder, to marvel, to glory in, to dig deep in the glory of Christ, the gravity of sin, and the greatness of His blessing. Behold, the glory of Christ, the gravity of sin, and the greatness of His blessing. And so with that, let's look deeply and begin to wonder at the beauty that we see in this passage. Now again, the sermon is on verses 11 through 26, but just for context, I want to read the whole event. So we're going to read all of chapter 3. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand. And raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you 
And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And by faith, that is through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who had spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now this passage is giving us something to truly wonder at, something truly worthy of our affection, of our hope, but we have to carefully behold it. We have to behold the glory of Christ, the gravity of our sin, and the greatness of this blessing. And so first, let's behold the glory of Christ. Now we speak of the glory of Christ, we sing about the glory of Christ, but how often do we really glory in Christ? How often do we find him glorious, worthy of all of our affection, all of our admiration? You know, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'd say, you know, it's, it's, it's even hard for us to begin to define that word. We, we struggle to even know what glory means. And part of this is owing to the fact that we're so easily amused. We're easily entertained. We're easily distracted. We amuse ourselves to death and rarely are we able to give glory to something, to really really delight in it, to wonder in it, to rejoice in it with all our hearts because we don't stay focused on it. We, we sort of pass out little bits of praise over and over again to many, many things within our lives and it leaves us empty of, of truly being able to wonder and glory in anything. Another reason is that we busy ourselves trying to seek our own glory to scratch out a name for ourselves. Well, friends, you can't give glory to Christ while you're trying to glorify yourself. Or, we don't behold the glory of Christ because we know so little about Him. We know from our Christmas songs that, that He's born of a virgin in a stable. He was declared from heaven by angels. He was visited by wise men and shepherds and, and possibly even a little drummer boy. We know from His life that, that He was a, a great teacher, a, a, a model of, of just love and sacrificial living, that He performed miracles, that He died on a cross for sin, but so often... 
we find so little glory in it. Well, friends, that level of knowledge is about the equivalent of what you can learn from somebody by looking at their driver's license. And let's face it, you look at somebody's driver's license, the only glorying, the only marveling, the only wondering you're doing in a driver's license is if that picture is really, really bad. And suddenly you're giggling, it comes up randomly every time you get together, hey, have you seen Ben's driver's license picture? It's pretty funny, right? But so often that's what we settle for. You can't love and delight in someone with that amount of information. There's so much more to the history of the United States that you can learn from a children's pop-up book, but so often that's what we settle for, a a pop-up picture of Jesus that can't lead us to behold the wonder. We see it right here in the crowd. They're hurrying about their own business without any thought or regard for this man who was born lame. Maybe they pass him by and they throw some, some change into the can, but they just kind of move right on. They've got, they've got no thought, no regard for Peter or John, much less Jesus. They're busy about their own stuff. That is until this man stood up. He stood up and he began walking and leaping and praising God and they recognized him. This, this was the man who's always laid there at the beautiful gate. I can't believe it. He's now walking. So now they're amused. They're, they're entertained. They stood in awe. They're utterly astounded. And so what do they do? They all just kind of run to them. I, I mean, the, the ninth hour of prayer is now over. They're departing from the temple. They're making their way to Solomon's portico and everybody's just running after them to meet them there. Suddenly, they're looking to this miracle. They're looking to this man. They're looking to Peter and John with wonder. But they're trying to find glory in or give glory to the wrong things. And so in verse 12, it says that when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. We, We did not do this. It was someone else's power, someone else's piety that caused this man to walk. This is because of the glory of Christ. But you know, so often we stop right there. Okay, Jesus did that. Great, move on. Let's go eat lunch. You see, pardon the pun, but this miracle was a lame excuse to preach the glory of Christ. Peter is going to turn our attention away from the sensational to see, help us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. We're going to move beyond that driver's license or that pop-up book knowledge of Jesus. And if we're going to do that, we have to see him through the lens of the Old Testament. It's only then that we can begin to truly wonder at who he is. Friends, there's a reason why we have two-thirds of our Christian Bibles are the Old Testament so that we can begin to see how uh, this this storyline of God's activity within the history of mankind all leads up and points towards and is fulfilled in Jesus. It takes that many years. It takes that many pages. It takes more than that. This is only a a small fraction of all that God has said and done within the, the, the history of man, and yet it's there for us so that we can see Jesus for more of what he is worth. But to behold the glory, we have got to dig deeper. And in these few verses, Peter goes very, very deep 
in order to show us Jesus' glory. He says right there in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. So who is this God? This is the God of the Old Testament. And if we're going to understand who this God is, if we're going to understand what he has already done, and if we're going to understand why it was even necessary for him to glorify his servant Jesus, guess where we have to look? To the Old Testament. You can't fully understand Christ. You can't really understand any of the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament background. Just like you can't understand any, why any event in history occurred, like wars or the colonization of America or the drafting of the Constitution, without understanding all of the events that led up to that one. Otherwise, you might acknowledge that Jesus came, but you don't really understand why he came. You don't really understand why it was necessary, why it was a big deal, why it even matters. The Old Testament teaches us that, but we have got to go deep. So again, you know, if you're going to need help for this, let me just plug the, the foundations course, Survey of the Old Testament. In that class, we go through every book of the Old Testament. We help to see how they all connect together, how all they build up, and they work their way towards finding their fulfillment in Jesus. We see promise after promise after promise after promise and how he is going to fulfill them. But the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob glorified his servant Jesus so that we might glorify Jesus. Now, if you happen to be wondering to yourself, why, why does Peter call Jesus God's servant rather than God's son? Well, he does that to put Jesus in line with some very specific purposes and promises and people that we see in the Old Testament. Right? He wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of some really key figures and some really key promises. You see, throughout the, the, the Bible, very few people are called God's servant, and all of them are very, very important for the history of God's people. And, but but this, this, even though very few people are called God's servant throughout the Bible, there are over 100 references to this title, Servant of God. Now, you'll be happy to know we're not going to look at all of them. But nevertheless, it's really key. There are three people in particular that we need to consider quickly because they're really, really important. The first one is Moses. Moses is the person that's most often referred to as the servant of God. Moses was the, the prophet. He was the priest. He was the leader of God's people during the time of their exodus as their removal from slavery to Egypt towards the promised land. He is key. The law was given through Moses. It was a big deal. And we need to understand how Jesus is greater than Moses. And the second figure who's called the servant of God is David, the king of Israel. And the third, or the people of Israel as a whole are called God's servant by the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And so what Peter's doing is he's putting putting Jesus right in line with, with Moses and with David and with Israel so that we might see that Jesus is the greater servant. He's the fulfillment. He's the one that all of those guys were pointing towards. This servant was better than Moses. This servant was the righteous branch of David. This servant was the true Israel. 
This servant Jesus was delivered over and denied. He he suffered and was killed. And in verse 26, we see that God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, could He say that about any of these other servants? He could not. God the Father raised up His servant, the Son, from the dead to bless you so that you might actually be able to turn away from your sin to God. No other servant that we read about in the Bible was glorified in that way. And so this servant that God glorified, we have to understand, was a suffering servant who died, who rose again for sin. And if that sound, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, that ought to make you think of the suffering servant from Isaiah, right? Referred to often, many chapters of Isaiah, but one that is key for us is Isaiah chapter 53. I'm just going to read some of it so we can get an idea for who this Jesus is. And and I I want you to listen for how this is speaking of Christ. It says, For he grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, So outwardly, as far as first impression goes, he's not very impressive. But he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Do you not hear speaking of Jesus? In what way does that speak of the people of Israel? Books have been written over this one theme, servant of God. Biblical theologies that walk from Genesis to Revelation to help us just to see all of the nuances and all of that 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 means. Again, we can look at hundreds of 
hundreds of passages pointing to this fact, but, but here we see Peter is telling us that God, the God who made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to all the fathers of Israel, the God who spoke the whole Old Testament into being, has fulfilled them by glorifying His suffering servant, Jesus. This is huge. In addition to the title servant, Peter also calls Jesus in verse 14 the holy and righteous one. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now let me ask you this. Who is the holy and righteous one of the Old Testament? Well, see, the holy one of Israel and the righteous one of, of, of Israel were two titles that were given and spoken of God over 40 times in the Old Testament. And here Peter is taking these two terms, he's putting them together, and he's applying them to Jesus. Friends, this is an indication of his divinity. He is fully God. He is the holy and righteous one. And these words, holy and righteous, they're not flippantly used and appointed and applied to men. To be holy is to be set apart and fully devoted to God. To be righteous is to be, uh, according to God's standard, is to always do what is right. We don't take these words sinless and, and perfect and apply them to men. Well, maybe if you're kind of keen on John Wesley. But aside from that, you don't, you don't do that. Because who is sinless? Who is perfect? Who is holy and righteous? It'd be like saying, well, yeah, Chet's sinless, Kyle's perfect, Caleb is the holy and righteous one. Well, they may think they are, but, you know, we spend time together. We know we're not. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous but God. No one is righteous but Jesus. And Jesus is righteous and holy because He is the God-man. And God the Father granted this perfect, sinless, holy, and righteous one to us, but we denied Him and asked for a murderer instead. You see, even right there, there are notions of the substitution of Christ in sacrificing Himself for others. The Holy and Righteous One took the place of a murderer on behalf of those who denied Him. So again, big, big stuff here. We're not done yet. Jesus is God's glorified servant. He's he's the Holy and Righteous One. And in verse 15, He is also called the author of life. Peter says, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. Now that word author, it could mean prince or leader, but it could also mean originator, source. And I'm amazed by how often people try to go with the former. Oh, Jesus is the prince of life. He's he's the leader of life. You see, Jesus, he leads the way to new life. That's how He's this leader of life. They just try to focus on his humanity to the neglect of his divinity. But the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ has just been raised from the dead and healed a man who has been lame from birth. Now let me ask you this. Who has power over life and limb but God? He is more than the one who leads us to a new life As you can imagine, this term carries with it power, authority, and ownership. Sure, he is the prince or the leader of life, but that is because he is the source and originator of life, 
of all of life because God created all things through him and he is the source and originator of our new life in Christ because God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through Christ's death and resurrection for sin. So it's all of it. This is nothing other than a divine term. He is the author of life, which means that he is the author of your life. You owe your life to him. And every one of us needs new life through him. Peter is saying, look, I can attest to the fact because John and I, we were there, we were witnesses to his resurrection. We saw the risen Christ many, many times. But even more than that, the whole crowd was witness to the fact that Jesus had just healed this man who was born lame. And so in verse 16, and in his name, and in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you now see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, only the author of life could be the source of giving this man perfect strength and health. Now his point here is not to suggest that if we just have enough faith, if we just believe in Jesus' name, that he will give us perfect health, but that the miracle happened because Jesus is the author of life. So believe in his name. Okay? There, it's not a promise that Jesus will give you perfect health, but that this man's new health is evidence to the fact that Jesus is indeed the author of life. So we are to believe in him. Again, the health and healing is not the focus of Peter's sermon. It's on the glory of Christ. He then moves on in verse 18, that God foretold by the mouth, which I think is interesting, it's singular, the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. It's not many words. It's not individual words. We don't think of prophets of kind of telling their individual stories. It is from the mouth of all the prophets. It's one word. It's one story. It's one message. And so God foretold of Christ by the mouth of all the prophets, all tell of Christ in one form or another. He foretold that this Christ would suffer. And now here in Jesus, all of this prophecy from, all, from the mouth of all the prophets concerning the suffering of Christ has been fulfilled. He thus fulfilled. God thus fulfilled. It has been fulfilled by the hand of God. And in verse 19 through 21, we see the forgiveness of sin, time of refreshing, and even this, this time between Christ's ascension into heaven and the appointed second coming of Christ to restore all things, God spoke by the mouth, singular, of his holy prophets long ago. He then gets even more specific. So that in verse 22, Moses, you know Moses, right? Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is in reference to Deuteronomy 18. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And so Peter is saying, look, Jesus is that prophet that Moses had promised way back in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is that guy. And God raised him up. And there's a play on words right there. Because it's not that God just appointed him, declared him to be that prophet. No, God literally raised him from the dead. Listen to him. 
Because he has been raised from the dead, he is still speaking. So listen to him. Listen to him through his apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He's still speaking through his word. Listen to him or be destroyed. Be cut off from his people. Verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken, every single one of them from Samuel through all of those who came after him, proclaimed these very days. These days between Christ's first and second comings. That's Peter's day as he spoke to, all, to this crowd at Solomon's portico. But that's also our day, right here and right now. And it is every day until Jesus returns at that appointed time to restore all things. And so the, 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 these prophets weren't just speaking about Peter's day, they're speaking about our day as well. When we go and we read the prophets, they have something for us to hear, to see the glory of Christ and then apply to our lives today. It's significant. And then in verse 25, he says to them, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, you know Abraham, Right? He had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Jesus, God has fulfilled or will fulfill not only every prophecy, but every single covenant promise, and not just for Israel, but for all the families of the earth, for the nations. The sons of the prophets, the sons of the covenant, are those who had received these prophecies and these covenants from God. And in Abraham's true offspring, Jesus, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's an invitation to all people, to everyone, to receive the blessings of these prophecies and of these covenants. So if you want to see something worthy of worship, if you want to truly behold glory, the solution is not to look for miracles. It's actually to look and see how Jesus fulfilled all of God's promises. If we were to take time to look carefully at every reference that Peter has made right here, we would look up hundreds and hundreds of passages from almost every single book in the Old Testament. And that's just what Peter mentions. But if we think about what all the New Testament says about Jesus, it's the whole Old Testament. It all points to Him. It's all fulfilled in Him. And so far more miraculous than, than speaking in tongues or, or healing of a man born lame is the fact that Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. So dig deep and marvel, not at the evidence of his power, but to see him for who he is, that all that God has revealed him to be and marvel at his glory. That's what Peter is saying to us. It's only after that that we, can, that we begin to behold the glory of Christ that we can truly begin to see anything else. And so I had to spend a lot of time there unpacking that so that we can second truly begin to see the gravity of our sin. Apparently, Peter never read all of those books on how to preach feel-good sermons for church growth because what he said to the crowd was anything but feel-good. 
And this is not a message that you would normally want to hear. This is a message that, you know, when visitors come in, I know this from personal experience, visitors come in, they hear it, they, they kind of leave and they don't come back. There's no immediate gratification in it, but then again, the feel-good part of the gospel only comes after we truly acknowledge the gravity of our sin. And the whole thing is thick with irony. You know, you've got this contrast between how God views Jesus and how everyone else views Jesus, right? God glorified his servant Jesus, but you, you delivered him over. He said that Pilate, the pagan, could not find any fault and had decided to release Jesus, but you, those who should have been directing the attention of the Gentiles to this one, saying, look at him, you rejected him. You denied him. He is the holy and righteous one, but you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He is the author of life, but you killed him. You did this. You are responsible. This is just like his Pentecost message in, in Acts chapter 2, only it's a different group of people, and he goes into greater detail about our sin. You thought it was bad the first time, well, here we got the second time. What he's saying here is the same thing, though. You are responsible. Even after verse 17, right, he says, look, I, 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 know, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He's saying, look, you know, I, I know you didn't know any better. I know you didn't realize truly who Jesus was and that all of this happened according to God's plan. He fulfilled it all. Nevertheless, you are responsible. You see, you should have seen him for who he is. God had foretold through the mouth of all the prophets that you grew up hearing. Even more than that, for three years, Jesus taught. He bore witness with many signs and wonders and miracles. He fulfilled all of these Old Testament promises that you had heard about and had been waiting for. So often you came here to the temple so many times and you prayed for a Savior, but you refused to save Him. You asked for a deliverer, but you delivered Him over. You long for the holy and righteous one to come, but in your sin and your unrighteousness, you exchanged him for a sinner. And maybe you yourself didn't ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus, but in your own way, you have all suppressed the truth about God and unrighteousness. You have all exchanged the truth about God for a lie. You have all worshipped and served the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And friends, that's all of us. You may be thinking to yourself, you know what, I wasn't one of them. I wasn't even there. This happened in Jerusalem like 2,000 years before I was ever born. He's not speaking about me. He's speaking to them. But friends, you killed the author of life too. And How do I know that? I know that because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Not just for this crowd in Jerusalem. I know that. Because the call he makes to them right there in verse 19 is the same one that God calls every one of us to. Repent, therefore, and turn again. Friends, repentance is spoken of more than 50 times in the New Testament, both to Jew and Gentile, both to you and me. You may have acted in ignorance. All of this happened according to God's purposes, but you are still responsible. And so you are obligated to repent. 
And just like in verses 22 and 23, we can either listen to God's prophet or we can be destroyed by him. You see, every sin that we commit, whether in ignorance or in direct rebellion to God and his law, every time we exchange Christ for whatever our chosen sin that murders our soul, we are delivering over the Lord's servant. We are denying the holy and righteous one. We are nailing Christ, the author of life, to the cross. And that deserves eternal destruction. It demands that we be cut off from God and from among His people forever. So Peter calls them to repent. To repent and turn again. And that's his call to us as well. And so the question for all of us is, will you turn away from your wickedness and receive the blessing of faith in Christ? Friends, what, what do you exchange Christ for? Have you ever thought about it that way? It's what we do. When we want something, when that thing becomes ultimate, when it becomes more important than Jesus, that's what we're doing. We're exchanging Christ. We're asking for this soul-murdering sin to be granted to us. What is it that you would kill the author of life for? Friends, let's keep in mind that one sin is worthy of eternal punishment from God. Our sin killed the author of life. So do you see why God calls it wickedness? There is no innocent, respectable sin. Pride, impatience, anger. Fear, all of it. You see the gravity of our sin. So turn away from it and receive the blessing of Christ. And friends, oh, what a blessing that it is. You see, when we truly begin to, to behold the glory of Christ and the gravity of our own sin, it's then that we can truly begin to marvel at the greatness of His blessing. Friends, these blessings begin even before we come to faith in Christ. Okay? I, I don't want you to sit back and be like, man, you just, you just nailed me about my sin. I feel really bad. Because these blessings begin before you accept them. You see, look at this crowd. These are the chosen people of Israel. The God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had revealed himself to them. He spoke through the mouth of all the prophets from so long ago for them. They were sons of the prophets and of the covenant. They have the privileged vantage point of of the ability to learn of the nature and character and purposes and promises of God as he has revealed himself to his people throughout the course of history. No other nation, no other people had that kind of privilege. Furthermore, they had all heard about Jesus as well. I mean, he'd been ministering for three years. They heard the testimony of these eyewitnesses to his resurrection, and they themselves saw this man who was born lame now suddenly leaping and walking and praising God. What a privilege they had to learn and see and hear all of this, and how appalling, how much more appalling when despite this blessing, they denied and rejected him. They received the blessing beforehand. 
Now, friends, don't, don't be envious because of the privileged position that they had right here. Because just because you weren't there to touch the man who was leaping for joy, we are bearing witness right here and right now in the hearing of this word to know that this really happened. You see, we are also witnesses of these things, even if they happened 2,000 years ago. We are without excuse. You too have God's word. You too are able to hear it faithfully taught and proclaimed. You too can be counted among the people of God to receive the blessing of the church to love and care and pray for you that nourishes you and your soul with the word. Friends, do you understand what a privilege it is to grow up in the church and to have believing parents that discipline and instruct you in the Lord who care for your soul both before and after faith in Christ? Don't neglect such a gift. And just like these Israelites who refused the Christ, it is equally horrific when someone walks away from the church who scoffs at those who have prayed for them, those who have, who have taught them, those who changed their dirty diapers and were there to rejoice in their baptism. Friends, don't neglect such the privilege we have of hearing and learning the word of God or the love of his people. And for those of us who, like this man, were broken, there is healing true eternal soul healing by faith in his name. You know, another blessing that we find in this passage is repentance. We don't like the idea of repentance. We don't think of repentance as a blessing because repentance humbles us. It means that I have to say that I'm wrong. I have to expose my sin to the light. It calls me to change, to turn away from it. I don't, I don't want to do that. But just look at what repentance results in in verses 19 through 21. It says, Repent therefore and turn again, one, that your sins may be blotted out, two, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and three, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. When we repent of our sin and we turn to Christ in faith, our sins are blotted out. Friends, the idea here is of removing ink from papyrus. You see, the ink didn't really set in. It didn't really stain the papyrus. And so when you blot out ink, you remove not just the ink itself, but the very stain of ink. Every stain of sin. Not only is our sin removed, not only did Christ die for my sins, that sin, and that sin, and that sin, and that sin, and even that sin right there, but he removed the stain of my sin. Those longings, those wants, those desires that lead me to sin, the guilt, the shame, the consequences, the, he, he works at reconciling what has been broken. Every stain, uh, stain of sin has been removed as we continually repent and believe. And with that comes times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing from Him. 
He gives them to you. Christ himself brings refreshment to our souls. He brings peace. He brings hope. He brings joy. He brings rest, knowing that his sacrifice truly was sufficient to cover all of my sin. He gives us strength for the fight of faith so that we're no longer crushed by guilt and shame. We're not like burdened down to the point of being unable to move, but we are now freed and encouraged then to walk in obedience. And the third effect of repentance is that when God the Father sins again, the Christ who was appointed for us, He will restore all things. It speaks of a future day when Christ returns again in glory. And all on that day, He will restore all things to Himself. The wicked will be forever punished, but the repentant will be glorified. Every single effect of sin will be undone. The world will be perfected. All death, all decay, all guilt, our own sin nature will be removed and we will live with Him forever in perfect glory. The riches of repentance are redemption, refreshment, and restoration. What a blessing comes when we repent and believe. Oh, friends, if we could just keep that in our hearts and in our minds, how often we would repent. And the extent of this blessing is lifelong, goes out to all people everywhere, and it overturns wickedness. In verse 22, God raised up this Moses-like prophet, Jesus, so that we shall listen to him in whatever he tells us. Right? So throughout our lives, Christ speaks to us continually through his word and through his spirit to lead us, to guide us. To, to help us in the way that we should go every moment of every day so that we might follow him. He didn't just die for our sins and then leave. And it's just, we're all by ourselves. He still speaks to us every day through the word and spirit. And he calls us to listen to his voice. And not only that, these blessings that he offers are not just for this tiny little nation of Israel but through Christ, the offspring of Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the word, it goes out for the privilege of their hearing. Repentance is offered for the redemption and refreshment and restoration of all people, no matter where they are or where they're from. The word and spirit are here to guide and to lead people from every tongue, every tribe, every family, every nation without any partiality. And in verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. And how does he bless you? He blesses you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Friends, the blessing of Christ overturns wickedness. And, and not just in abstraction, but in reality, in our hearts. He comes to change us, to lead us away from wickedness to, to holiness in Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done in Christ. There is hope for change. Your wickedness can and your wickedness will be turned by the hand of God when you receive the blessings of Christ. And so change is possible. 
Growth in holiness and in Christ-likeness will happen as God turns you and as you repent and believe. Your wickedness can, can be no more if you would but receive the blessing of Christ. And friends, we are called to do that today and every day until the day when Christ will fully and finally come in glory to remove every single stain of sin. He will overturn every single wickedness. The, the wicked will be judged and Christ will live with his people forever in glory. Friends, look deeply upon this. Wonder and marvel at who Christ is of all that he has done for us and follow him. Look at the glory of Christ. Behold, wonder, marvel. See, look fully at the gravity of your sin. Don't, don't hide it any longer in the darkness, but expose it to the light. Be free of it. And rejoice in the greatness of the blessings that he gives each and every one of us. And we get to walk in that together. And so friends, let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this reminder of the gospel. That so often we, we reduce it down to, to little things of, of what Christ did. He died, he rose, he, he lives again. And if we believe in him, we're going to be saved. And so from here on out, it's just up to us. But God, I, I pray that, that we would truly marvel at the person and work of Christ. Oh God, I pray that we would dig deep. That we would pour over Scripture so that we might see Him in all His glory. And I pray that in seeing Him for all of His glory, it might shine as light that casts back darkness in our own hearts and reveals to us the gravity of our sin so that we will no longer hang on it and hold fast to it, but that we would turn from our wickedness because of the blessing that we have received in Christ. And God, help us to rejoice in what you have given us of all the blessings that we have in Christ. I, I pray that we would marvel at the fact that even right now, in the hearing of his word and the ability we have to pray to you that, that these are blessings, these are privileges that you give to us so that we might be with you. God, we know that things are hard and it's easy to become distracted, but I, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the blessings that we have in him and to truly rejoice in them. Oh God, help us to behold the wonder. It's in his name we pray. Amen.